Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, who are ISIS K, and what threat do they pose to Afghanistan and to the wider world? Less than two weeks after the Taliban took control in Afghanistan, the country saw its first horrific terror attack. Two suicide bombers detonated in the vicinity of the Abbey Gate at Hamad Karzai International Airport and in the vicinity of the Barron Hotel, which is immediately adjacent. The suicide bombing, which killed more than 100 people, was claimed by a group of extremists known as the Islamic State in Khorasan. US President Joe Biden promised to hunt down the perpetrators. We will not forgive We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. And the reaction was swift, with US forces carrying out a number of drone strikes against ISIS-K in the days that followed. The airstrike occurred in the Nangarhar province of Afghanistan. Two high-profile ISIS targets were killed and one was wounded. In recent years, ISIS-K has emerged as an enemy of both the West and of the Taliban. But who are they and what do they want? Chelsea Damon is a researcher and PhD candidate at American University in Washington, D.C. and her work focuses on terrorist and extremist groups. Chelsea, many people, certainly many people in this part of the world, might be hearing about ISIS-K for the first time over the past week. Can you explain first of all who they are? So... ISIS in Khorasan, um, we've heard many different acronyms like ISIS-K, ISKP, they're all the same thing. They are the Central Asian province of Islamic State, and its main presence is shown in eastern Afghanistan. And Khorasan actually refers to a historic region that was supposed to encompass parts of Iran, Turkmenistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and other locations in the region. There are debates of the exact date that ISK or ISIS-K came into existence. Some have argued that its presence started in the spring of 2014 because that is when Islamic State leadership began recruitment efforts in the region. With that being said, in January of 2015, ISIS-K was officially announced by then ISIS spokesman Abu Adnan, Muhammad al-Adnani, in a voice recording. But as I said, it's been around for a number of years at this point, so it's not new to the region. How is it recruiting members and where are those members coming from? So it utilizes um, different recruiting methods. Uh, This includes getting disenfranchised individuals from the region, including a handful of Taliban defectors. However, the recruitment has really focused on both on the ground, but also reaching out to other regions. So there have been reports of recruitment efforts in Tajikistan, Bangladesh, India, and other parts of the nearby region. And then there also have been reports that at the time of the sort of collapse of the caliphate in Syria and Iraq, ISIS Central had sent some foreign fighters to Afghanistan. So it's a combination of on-the-ground efforts as well as looking outside of Afghanistan. And also the propaganda has promoted a promotion of 
recruitment to the ISK and the region. And do we know how many people are in ISIS-K. Have we any idea of what of what level the membership is? Yes. So there are estimates and these, these range differently. In 2019, which of course is a couple of years ago now, there was an estimate of maybe around 5,000 fighters. Although recently now we're hearing lower numbers. So like maybe 2,000 fighters. So it isn't clear, but it's in the thousands. We can put it that way. And we have to remember too that in April of 2017, the US has been well aware of ISIS-K, so this branch in Central Asia, and they actually dropped what they called the mother of all bombs on a complex in um, eastern Afghanistan that killed a large number of ISK members. This was the first time that we encountered an extensive obstacle to our progress, and therefore this was the appropriate weapon to use at this time to reduce that obstacle to enable us to continue with our offensive operation in the southern Niger Heart. ISIS-K in general does provide higher paid salaries than what someone that might join the Taliban would receive. So in a country that really has a about, I think it's about 40 some odd percent of the population lives under the poverty level, that can be really enticing. Uh, reports have been that ISIS-K fighters have received anywhere from a couple hundred dollars a month to be in the organization. And then there also have been reports that the family of martyrs can sometimes receive a very high payment of $15,000, which in a country that's poor, that's a lot of money. Now, it is a lot of money. So where is ISIS-K getting its money? Who's funding it? Funding comes from various sources. Some of that comes from the Islamic State's central core, so the organization as a whole. But then ISIS-K, which we also saw with ISIS in Syria and Iraq, they exploit natural resources, extorting the local population for taxes of goods. We saw this in Syria and Iraq as well, different trucks that had goods and so forth. If they entered ISIS territory, they were taxed. So taxing brings in a lot of income. And then there have been reports that there are donors from foreign states coming from more of the Gulf region that have provided funds to ISK. And while we don't have an exact figure of what ISIS-K makes in a year, there has been an estimate of about $300 million, which is a large sum. What do ISIS-K want? What's their end goal in all of this terror? So that's an interesting question because ISIS-K's end goal also is entwined with the Islamic State's goal, so the, the core of the organization. Propaganda from ISK has promoted this concept of a global jihad, which also fa falls in line with the Islamic State's general goals. And Islamic State propaganda also focuses on this idea that the Islamic State and its affiliates are on this true path of jihad. And we saw some of this being promoted in a recent edition of the Islamic State's Al-Naba newsletter. They had a 300th edition that came out very recently, and it actually touched upon the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. And it was interesting because it, it kind of implied that the victory was false and that once again, ISIS and ISK was on this true path of jihad. 
I'll say in the short term, though, ISIS-K is really most likely to be attempting to undermine the Taliban, which now has to govern a country. And if you think about that and how ISIS in general and many of its um, affiliates have operated, ISIS and ISIS-K and all of its affiliates tend to take advantage of destabilized regions and using that for their advantage. And I'm sure we're going to see that tactic continue in Afghanistan with ISIS-K. So ISIS-K and the Taliban are enemies, but have they ever worked together? So the ISIS and the Taliban are arch enemies. Um, this stems from different religious views, different interpretations of the Quran, or should I say different radical interpretations of Islam. ISIS sees the Taliban as um, an inferior group. So you're not going to see a lot of love between the two groups. There's been a lot of conflict between ISIS-K and the Taliban for many years, because if you think about it right now, the Taliban, and even previously, they were trying to have Afghanistan under their wing. And ISIS-K is a presence that causes issues for them. So they are a foe on both sides, and you will most likely see continued clashes between the groups. Many people have only become familiar with ISIS-K in recent days, but it's been very active in Afghanistan for, for years now. Can you give us some examples of some of the attacks it has claimed responsibility for? As you mentioned, the group has been responsible for claiming a number of attacks. And then there's some other attacks that they haven't claimed, which are up to debate. 77 attacks in Afghanistan by the group from January to April this year, triple the number last year, according to UN investigators. In general, ISIS-K focuses on soft targets, government buildings, polling stations, things like that. And we've seen this in 2019. There was a horrible suicide bombing that ISIS-K took responsibility for on a Kabul wedding that killed over 90 people. In August of 2020, there was a very brazen attack on a prison complex in Jalalabad, which had a gunfight that lasted for over 20 hours and about 29 people were killed and over a thousand prisoners were free. And these prisoners were both Taliban and ISIS affiliated prisoners. And then um, we also saw a really horrible attack in November of 2020 on Kabul University, which had um, more than 30 people killed and many, many injured. And this is just a short list of the attacks that ISIS-K has been responsible for in the region. Islamic State in Iraq and Syria were roundly defeated more than two years ago. So what makes this affiliate group in Khorasan so much harder to suppress? So I think we have to remember that even though ISIS lost its so-called caliphate, the Islamic State core, so the organization itself has never really truly been defeated. It still has a presence outside of the Levant. And actually, it still does have fighters in Syria and Iraq. So this is clear from branches across the world, including in South Asia, Central and West Africa, Sinai, Libya, Yemen, and many, many others. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that ISK is harder to suppress. It's just another cog in the organization. With that being said, though, we've seen throughout history that Afghanistan is a country that has been very advantageous to extremist and terrorist groups as both a safe haven and an operational base. And this can be partly due to the very terrain. And also, historically, groups in the region have provided support to organizations like Al-Qaeda, like we saw with the Taliban as a good example. There have been no terrorist attack 
on Allied soil over the last two decades, organized from Afghanistan. Those now taking power have the responsibility to ensure that international terrorists do not regain a foothold. Do you think that the impact of ISIS-K is likely only to be felt in Afghanistan? Or will it seek to export its terror machine to other countries in the same way that ISIS has done over recent years? So that's an interesting question because, once again, we're looking at ISIS-K as an affiliate of the Islamic State franchise, we can call it. So in the short term, yes, it's definitely going to unfortunately be felt in Afghanistan. And this will be also, you have to remember that the region has a number of other militant organizations that are all sort of vying for some sort of grounding in the country. So we'll definitely see potentially more skirmishes between ISIS-K and the Taliban. As far as long-term goals, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the propaganda looks at ISIS and then ISK as this global jihad. Um, So In general, the organization itself, the Islamic State, really does promote this idea of a global jihad. And I mean, while it hasn't been ISIS-K's main goal, we also have seen, of course, recently and in the past, ISK mounting attacks on U.S. interests or U.S. personnel, even if it really doesn't have the capacity to do so, especially now that the U.S. has left the country. The United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. What do you think the legacy of its involvement in that country will be? If you think about it, the U.S. originally went to Afghanistan to hunt down and eliminate the perpetrators of 9-11, which, you know, we say we've achieved that, even though there still is a presence of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But with that being said, you know, no one really wants to see a forever war. And I think the ironic and sad part of this is that we have the anniversary of 9-11 that's coming up. It's looming. And the U.S. entered Afghanistan to combat a terror group at the time that was al-Qaeda. And now it's left the country in the hands of the Taliban, which is an extremist group. That's the thing that sits in my mind every day watching this situation. I think the main thing that we need to ask ourselves and what the really important question is less about the U.S. legacy in Afghanistan and more now considering the long road ahead for the people of Afghanistan, because they're the ones that are going to have to live, work and navigate in a really highly uncertain landscape. And all of us have seen the images and the news in the last two weeks, and it's been heartbreaking. Coming up, what will life under the Taliban be like for those left behind? Dr. Ruja Faza Ali, you're an associate professor in Islamic civilizations at Trinity College in Dublin. In your work, you look at issues around Islam and gender. Islamic feminism and human rights. What do you think we can expect from the latest incarnation of the Taliban? 
So I think even if the Taliban has changed somewhat organizationally, doctrinally, the Taliban still appears to be the old Taliban. And, you know, and this is, this should be put in context, of course, that we are in a very different world now than when they began to control Afghanistan's many major cities and provinces at the end of the civil war in Afghanistan in 1996. So, you know, if you're following the news coming out of Afghanistan, you do see certain anecdotal evidence that the boys are back in town. So this uh, includes the killings of protesters in cities of Jalalabad and As- Asadabad. Um, and, and really, they, they, they look eerily like their fathers before them patrolling the streets, just as in the post-Soviet war era. Uh, these Taliban say that after such an extended period of, of conflict, they want peace. And I've read this in academic articles that Afghanistan has been in conflict so long that when Taliban were in power 1996 to 2001, uh, you did have that period of uh, peace. But the fear by so many is is that rather than positive peace, they will again seek to suppress conflict through the enforcement of this very harsh version of uh, Sunni Islamic law. And, and you know, and, and when, when you talk about uh, Islamic law as well, I, I, I do uh, caution on this. You know, you have to look at it in its articulation with, with customs and norms. And in this sense, it's the Pashtu Wali or the Pashtun Honor Code. In recent weeks, we've seen the PR machine of the Taliban in full effect. And one of the things that the Taliban spokespeople have been saying is that the rights of women will be protected and people will have the right to work and they will have a right to an education. Is there any comfort to be drawn from the claims by the Taliban in recent weeks that women will not be subjugated in the way that they were in the past? Yeah. So, you know, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to, to tell what will the, the future holds. But as I said before, the Taliban's ideological foundation has not changed. The fears about immediate violation of women's, women's rights. And also, uh, let's bring in minority rights as well. The, the Hazaras, uh, who have a huge fear of the Taliban. And, and these are rooted in past historical experiences. Um, and, and again, anecdotally, we see these uh, being validated. So I've, I've heard in places women have already been told not to return to university, uh, that their jobs will be taken by men. Um, in addition, um, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Wahidullah Hashemi, one of the Taliban spokespeople, um, and reflecting the thinking of the car- current Taliban leadership, uh, said that the ulama, so ulama are Islamic scholars, and uh, they have been historically, and especially in this formation, men uh, will be the ones to determine the future of women's rights in Afghanistan under Islamic law. And here again, you know, we, we go back to what is this interpretation of Islamic law that the, the, the you know everyone is calling them Taliban uh, 2.0 now uh, is 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 going to hold, uh, but but also like generally when there is this articulation of certain things in the name of religion, it becomes quite worrying. So this type of collision of religion with politics is always worrying, but also it's more so when it's deployed in governance of a state. But of course, Afghanistan today isn't the same as Afghanistan was in 1996. There's a much broader middle class 
and people have much wider access to social media and to the internet. Will that make it harder for the Taliban to exert the same control over the people that they did in the past? To be honest, I think it's uh, visual thinking um, to think that uh, they may exert less control. Although Taliban may try to express a more tolerant face, just having witnessed the media's report of the exodus of the educated and middle class from Afghanistan in the past few weeks, you know, the sheer panic and the number of people trying to get out of the country uh, really, uh, you know, again, makes one think that the old boys are back in town. And also, you know, people are, are fleeing. And uh, like we've all seen the Afghan airports and the number of people trying to to get out. And I know myself, I, uh, I'm the representative of scholars at risk in Trinity College, Dublin. And I see the number of professors and students who are trying to get out of Afghanistan. And, you know, what, what does this point to that there is going to be a major brain drain from Afghanistan? And that, that makes kind of the, the hope for future of Afghanistan at the moment quite bleak. We know now that the Taliban are not the only violent group operating in Afghanistan at the moment. In fact, they're arguably not even the most extreme. We saw the terror attack on Kabul airport in recent days that left almost 200 people dead. And that was launched by ISIS-K. Do you have any sense of how the Taliban will deal with those internal conflicts that they will have to confront? So I don't think in a way we can measure extremism if, if you're talking about kind of different extreme groups uh, in, in Afghanistan in the times of conflict and transition. So, you know, as, as I said, I, I don't think Taliban has changed much and uh, at least again, uh, doctrinally. So, uh, it's, um, they, they may have changed kind of how, how they operate in some ways. You know, we've seen Taliban in the past cause much terror, devastation, and also when they were vying for power. And again, you know, anecdotal evidence suggests that not much has, has changed. Um, and I do want us to, I, I want to encourage us uh, to divorce notions of extremism being solely related to religion and, and Islam in this context. However, all this said, uh, Islamic State of Khorasan, an offshoot of Daesh Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, are an armed group formed in 2014. And they have been at war with Taliban since 2015. And this is, this is important to note. They, they are breakaway fighters from uh, the Pakistan Tal- Taliban and fighters from Afghanistan who pledged allegiance to the ISIL leader Abu Bakr Baghdadi. I think this ISIS group sees Taliban having negotiated with the West and therefore the transfer of power in Afghanistan is not seen as a victory for the Taliban uh, in the view of ISIS-K. And then from all the attacks, including car bombs, suicide attacks, you, you mentioned the, the really devastating attack at Kabul airport, assassination, rocket attacks. We can say that ISIS-K uh, does pose a threat not only to Taliban, but to Afghanistan. And here really, we should, we should really think about what people of Afghanistan are going to endure. They've been in, in conflict for so, so long. They have now Taliban in power and Taliban themselves are at war with other extreme groups. Do you have any hope that Afghanistan can become a normal functioning state in the short or medium term or even the long term, a state where men and women have equal rights and minorities have equal rights and violence isn't endemic? Or is such a prospect even more remote now than it was maybe a decade ago? 
Yeah, it's a it's it's a good question. It's a hard one, and I think it's a question that really should be put in context. Afghanistan is a country with a long history of conflict, and but also when it comes to women's rights, we have uh, you know a, again go back not only to to religion but also to customs and also the fact that Afghanistan has been in conflict. Also, it's a highly patriarchal and tribal society. Like we have so many different ethnic groups. You have the Pashtuns, the Tajiks, the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, the Amiak, Turkmens, Baluch, and and more. But but yet, Afghanistan is doesn't exist in in a vacuum. Uh, we do live in a globalized world uh, with an international order. However, when we speak of women's rights, we still have ways to go. I'm not just talking about Afghanistan, but but the world over. Given uh, Taliban's resume of violations of women's rights, leaves me and I think others with little hope of where and how questions of women's equality in Afghanistan can be started again. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.